0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900CHML
1: Hey, it's Hamilton Today I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son Will Weber is on the board Will Erskine bucking the guests In the newsroom, Jen McQueen Here's Scott Thompson
2: Yeah You gotta love the Jackie Wilson Or not. Uh, Jackie Wilson, number 121 on Rolling Stones, uh, top 200 singers of all time. There you go. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton today. Everyone here, Blue Jays home opener. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's great. But uh, I heard one commentator say, uh, because the, you know, it's like the first stage of the new stadium. Like they're putting, not new stadium, they've done a refurb at uh, the Skydome. Let's call it that. Remember that? So, uh, and, and, You know, I think there's like this is over a couple of years, three years. And a series of of changes during the off season, and stage one of that done uh, for to, uh, for tonight and for uh, this year, and it looks uh, pretty impressive. And you know, when you're watching the hype to opening day uh, all this week, it's really little about the team and uh, more about oh, have you seen this? Oh, have you seen that? See what this does over here? Oh, have you seen the bullpen? Have you seen what this does? Ba 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 ba. And uh, and oh yeah, by the way, there's a there's a baseball game too. <laughs> Have you seen the new digs? And oh, yeah, the Jays are playing. So, uh, anyway, uh, here's Global News is Matt Cardi on the big day, the big night tonight, the home opener.
0: Okay, okay, Blue Jays.
3: million dollars is being poured in here to these renovations the look is different the feel is different but there's also so many more food options christine robertson is the director of fan services
4: toronto has such an incredible food scene and we really wanted to represent that here as part of our fan experience
3: now some new things to try mail on a bun churros beef patties banh mi sandwiches smoked meat sandwiches and of course the center of attention a poutine hot dog
4: poutine of course came up from our
2: fans as foods that they think would fit well here
3: matt cardi global news
2: all right uh, tonight seven o'clock uh, the big home opener and you know lots of changes as you heard matt say you know different feel different vibe different culture until you open your wallet then it feels exactly the same then as soon as you open the wall, oh, yeah, that's re- That familiar feeling. Yeah, baby, just give it away. There, there, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, there you go. Uh, it's just lots more things to spend your dough on, which is nice. I mean, you know, it's it's. I'm glad they didn't just tear it down and start over, which is what they seem to do. Thank goodness they did see some advantage of the retractable roof. Hey, you can fix the inside all you want. Go nuts. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how they make up uh, make out this year and uh, of course uh, b- b- going to generate more interest more people going to love it going to go and uh, and explore the experience we'll talk about that with radley coming up a little later on also the other big news uh, is the entire board of the trudeau foundation has stepped down and i guess it's everybody else's fault <laughs> it's just it's politics you know it's gotten so damn divisive Um, I don't know. I always thought it was the leader that set the tone. I always thought it was the president or the prime minister. I thought they set the tone, not the opposition. Um, But listen to this. This is uh, Maya Robson from the Canadian Press on the Foundation.
5: The Trudeau Foundation
2: was set up in 2001 in memory of the former Prime Minister. The office of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says he is not involved in its work. But last month, the foundation returned a donation for $140,000 given in 2016 by two Chinese businessmen. After learning, it may have been initiated by the Chinese government. The board and CEO say in a written statement issued this morning that it is impossible for them to continue in the current political climate. Three directors will stay on temporarily until a new board and CEO can be found. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. The current political climate. What? That everybody's banging on the Prime Minister's office door to answer allegations of interference in elections or just general Canadian life by the uh, Chinese Communist Party? The political climate? What, What political climate? This is the climate that the Prime Minister has created for himself. He's driving the bus. Uh, here's what the, uh, here's what the Prime Minister had to say about how this is everybody else's fault but his.
4: As you well know, uh, the Trudeau Foundation is uh, a a foundation uh, with which I have absolutely no intersection. Uh, it was established uh, to promote uh, knowledge and uh, academic research into the humanities, uh, following uh, the death of my father, uh, and has had uh, an extraordinary impact on uh, academic institutions and on uh, you know brilliant Canadians. Um, It is a shame to see the level of uh, toxicity and political polarization uh, that is going on in our country these days. Uh, But I am certain that the Trudeau Foundation uh, will be able to continue to ensure uh, that research into the social studies and humanities at the highest levels across Canadian uh, academic institutions uh, continues for many years to come.
2: This guy is ripe. I'm telling you. Does he ever take the blame for anything? It's the divisive politics that we have. You're the leader. You're driving the bus. Everywhere the bus goes, you've taken us there. You're being accused of sitting idle during Chinese Communist Party interference over two elections because it favored the liberals. The foundation was given a check by somebody tied to the same thing. Allegedly. And you're talking about divisiveness? It's a lack of transparency. How is the mood of the country anybody else's fault but the person who's leading it? And now they're all, oh, the politics of it all. You're getting money from the Chinese Communist Party and it doesn't look very good. And oh, the divisiveness? It's not the divisiveness. It's the shady actions that you've been up to that you won't come clean on. And you're blaming divisive politics. It's interference by the Chinese Communist Party, whether it's elections, industry, medicine. That's what the, that's what, that's what's being alleged here. Not the divisiveness coming from across the aisle that's not who sets the tone for the country the prime minister does he's made his bed you enjoy it all right uh do you remember mad magazine You know, I mean, if you're a kid growing up in the 70s, um, you know, and and especially if you have maybe older brothers, sisters, whatever, brothers, no doubt, cousins, this was around the house. And, you know, but the back page with the fold, all of that stuff. uh, Then you might remember the name Al Jaffe, Mad Magazine's award-winning cartoonist, uh, responsible for a lot of that, passed away at the age of 102. To talk more about all of this, Graham McKay is with us, editorial cartoonist with the Hamilton Spectre author of you might be from hamilton if and graham is with us now graham
3: thanks for the time hope you're well well thanks for having me uh scott great to be here graham i think
2: this is the first time i have ever interviewed you and i've been a massive fan for years uh i've lived across the country in various cities and you are one of the best at this across the country uh, across the country you do consistently day in and day out great work and uh kudos it's it's great to have you on Oh, that's great to hear. Thanks.
3: Thanks very How, much, Scott. That's, be, that's really nice of you to say.
2: Before we even get into this, I want to talk about you for a little bit. How did you get into this? How did you start this? Because this would seem that this would be a dream gig for someone who's into this stuff.
3: Oh, it sure is. I mean, I guess you don't go to school to become an editorial cartoonist. You just kind of fall into it with luck, and, and I guess that's what happened to me. I mean, I I grew up in the 1970s you know uh looking at all the mad magazines and SCTV and snl and everything and and so that kind of humor that came out of that time period sort of went with me and as a little nerdy kid i i would doodle through my childhood and into class and into university and eventually end up at a student newspaper and you're doing it at cartoons and then that ends up you know going bigger uh and i was just luckier i got my job at the spectator in 1997 and they were looking for a new uh, cartoonist to replace blaine blaine had retired 5 years later or 5 years before and i and i got the, the gig 5 years later thanks to i, I guess it was kirk LaPointe who um mm. uh, started the search for a cartoonist and hey i got the job and i've been doing it for 25 years
2: Doodling and 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 whatever and creating whatever uh, um, the foundation you lay to do this is one thing, but then to do caricatures of people. that's that's a different skill, isn't it? it's isn't it more difficult?
3: It is. Uh, and you either have it or not. and and some if you can mix that with politics, and I guess I can do it. Uh, then you can maybe monetize it. I guess you can be an Ontario place, sort of, or Wonderland kind of cartoonist and, and you got a a living, but it's, uh, it's a little more lucrative and you can convert it to, uh, you know, editorial or, or political cartoons what is
2: the key because obviously you want someone you want something that as soon as you look at it you immediately get it you understand what the message is you're trying to say Uh, how how difficult is that to pull something that that everybody knows about and is going to identify with right away you don't get too deep into the woods with it all or weeds yeah
3: well I got into this actually by being an illustrator or caricaturist before I got into the editorial cartoon gig so there's a lot of practice and a lot of like throwing out pieces of paper in order to, to mm. actually nail the caricature. And, and I guess I started off being more of a realistic caricaturist with uh, the uh, cross hatching technique that um, is, is sort of gone by the wayside nowadays. But now it's, it's more of a simplest, simpler kind of way of, of capturing mm. any kind of uh, caricature just with a few lines. And I, some are very challenging. Others are very easy. I mean, I can do. Justin Trudeau basically blindfolded now as the same with um, Donald Trump. Others are, are way more challenging now.
2: So uh, talk about mad magazine and growing up as a kid and how this influenced you.
3: Oh yeah. It was uh, a lot of, a lot of cartoonists. They, they, they did the, um, you know, the, the comic book thing of the, the superheroes. I wasn't really that kind of a kid. I, uh, geez, I remember I, I grew up in Dundas, and I remember riding my banana seat bike to the Pleasant Valley Variety Store and picking up. Uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't mad; it was crack. And this would have been in the you know the the late '70s uh, when I go there. And it and, and just you know your your producer called me, and I to tell you the truth, I, I haven't given much thought to uh, Al and I, and a lot of them are just kind of a blur of Sergio Argonis and. Uh, Don Martin, I guess, Jack Davis, they all kind of... I had to actually go and review and, and, and have a look at, at the influence that Al would have had on me, and my goodness, there, there's a, a lot there. Like, cartoonists basically get their style by blending a whole bunch of styles over years, and, yeah. and he certainly... <laughs> I look back and I just say, wow, there's stuff that happened in my head back in the 1970s. I, I may not have really known... What I was looking at was the Al Daffy stuff but now I, I see my goodness that guy really had an influence on me and uh I, I wish I knew a little earlier but um uh, it's it really was uh, it was this was a time period before the internet and before our phones and yeah. everything like that
1: yeah.
3: and I guess if you're a nerdy guy like me and I had an interest in news like I drew a lot when I was a kid and I I, I just kind of immersed myself in in the Mad magazines of that time, and 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 you felt well, the other kids are playing football or they're watching you know beachcombers or whatever, and I was there's the Mad magazine was seen as a cheap kind of subversive magazine that yeah. uh, you know you bought for fifty cents or whatever, but there was a certain level of sophistication, something that we were reading that other people weren't you know, reading about, and and it was going against the grain of. There's cynicism in there, and we were all supposed to be happy, cheery kids. But there's some, there's a bit of a, a subversive message there about the way the world was going back in the 1970s. That was we- yeah almost a little
2: you know almost a little sick for lack of a better phrase uh, what a i've little. noticed about uh, with al stuff and i see this in yours too is like there's obviously a subject in, in the main character and then it's all the other stuff that's going on in the background the real subtle stuff that you think mm-hmm. you know you spend your time looking around the main character to what's going on in the sidelines
3: yeah we call those easter eggs so you look yeah. in the background um i, I do a an occasional strip called Young Doug Ford. And I don't know if you've seen that, but that's... Yeah, uh, yeah, it, yeah. It comes with out the Helix his, With the Helix t-shirt. Yes, with the Helix t-shirt. And, and that's... It's not much of a jab against Doug Ford. It's just sort of my own reflection on my upbringing, you know, in Dundas, circa, you know, 1982. I, I, I think Doug Ford is a little um, older than me. But a lot of those little things in the background are little presents for my... Demographic, you know, the fifty-year-old, yeah, fifty to sixty-five-year-old people that will get those little gags, uh, but, but, like the bolo bat or the, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. the chum sticker on the sticker on on the windows and stuff <laughs> like that. Just, just little tiny Easter eggs, we call them, a bit subversive.
2: Graham McKay with us, editorial cartoonist and one of the best in the country for the Hamilton Spectator, author of You Might Be From Hamilton If, talking about Al Jaffe, former Mad Magazine award-winning cartoonist, passed away at the age of 102. Graham, as uh, as always, first time, hope you uh, come by again. Always love uh, uh, reading your stuff, or looking at your stuff, and uh, keep up the great work in the spec. Thanks very much, Scott.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Lots of big cities, just like Hamilton. You got the Sobe bikes. You want a bike, you take a bike. Communal e-scooters, ride shares, car rentals. How about a boat? <laughs> Why not? Uh, and thanks to Finland's Skippery, what, boat sharing. Uh, Kevin Dextrader is with us, country lead Skippery, and is with us now. Kevin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks for having me, Scott. So describe what this is. It's kind of like um, every other sharing service, except you get a boat.
1: Right on. So Skippery is the world's first boat sharing app. Uh, So essentially with a monthly membership, and this is only during the boating season. So from May 1st till October 31st, uh, Skippery takes care of all the hassle of owning your own boat uh, so that people can only enjoy the fun parts of boating. Uh, so we take care of winterization, storage, insurance, all the stuff that people don't want to pay for. We take care of it. Um, in a nutshell, Skippery's mission is really to democratize the boating space, uh, make it more accessible for everyone, regardless of age, gender uh, and also boating experience.
2: So uh, the idea of this is not a one time thing. You're, you're in it for the summer. Is that accurate? You're in for uh, a, a few month period. Is that is that accurate?
1: That's correct. So people sign up. Uh, they can sign up whenever they want, but they need to, uh, yes, commit until the end of uh, uh, the season, which is October thirty first for us.
2: Um, so these are people that are going to go go out voting quite a bit. Then I would imagine.
1: That's correct. So we did our market preview here um, in Toronto uh, back in June twenty twenty two until uh, the last day of October, and the um, the the the. the the, the, the answer from Torontonians in general uh, was 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 out of this world so we operate right now Skipri in eight countries globally and um, this has been the best uh, launch uh, from uh, in comparison to all of our other markets and um essentially throughout the the, the last couple of months uh, we've been getting so much uh demand from from different areas uh in the gta but also other lakes and hamilton was definitely you know at the top of the list here so we uh partnered up with the uh, harbor um the um the uh, uh, Harbor West Marina, uh, where we have three uh, boats that will be there as of May 1st, uh, with options to add uh, up to four more for a t- total of seven. If ever, um, actually after this conversation, uh, memberships uh, 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 increases for, uh, for us in, in that specific region, region we have uh, the ability to increase the number of boats we'll have ready for the, uh, the Hamilton market.
2: So uh, you said three here. Hopefully, more uh, to grow. Would you have? Would you get the same boat every week? Every whatever? Would they switch it up? How does
1: that work? Great question. So all our boats are, are brand new um, uh, Starcraft um, uh, boats, powered by Yamaha engines, uh, ranging between seventeen and twenty three uh, footers. Uh, Everything is done through a mobile app. So you check in, you check out. um, um, Everything you do is within that mobile app and you get to pick and choose the boat you want for that specific day. So we have uh, essentially two reservation slots every day, one that starts at 8.30 a.m. until 4 p.m. and the other one uh, starts at uh, 4.30 p.m. until 8 a.m. the next day. Uh, You don't have to use it for the full time. There's no additional cost. This is your your monthly membership. And and, and that's it. So uh, monthly membership, uh, then you have unlimited amount of use of the boat or how many how, how does that work? That's correct. Unlimited. Uh, So right now, what we've seen in our market preview last year, on average, uh, members were using them uh, 4.3 times per week, which is which is very high um, um, in comparison to 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 a private boat owner. Um, But we have had some members going out literally every day and sometimes multiple times a day. Wow.
2: So who who who's the customer here, Kevin? Who's who's using the service?
1: It's it's funny a bit of everyone. Uh, We've we've just wrapped up our um, uh, we did a survey at the end of the season last year, and we have members from uh, ranging from twenty one to eighty two years old. Um, We really have a wide um, uh, variance of, of 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 members and customers. Essentially, boating is for everyone, and that's our motto. We really want to make sure that everyone gets to experience the joys of, of, of being on the water. Um, the feedback we've received, especially when it comes to uh, overall kind of wellness and, 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 and mental health, the liberty and, and the, the freedom, the fun that, that boating provides should be for everyone. It should be simple. And that's really um, what we're trying to achieve here at Skippery.
2: So you've got some clients that are using like this thing almost every day or like up to four times a week, which is quite a bit for like you, uh, like you were mentioning, even probably somebody who owns a boat and goes down and does it, I don't know, a couple of times on the weekend, whatever. Um, uh, that being said, is it, uh, um, would this grow with the amount of boats that you get? Would Could you get to the point, do you see where, you know, if you just want to take one for a day as a opposed to the whole month or is that, is that just not part of the plan?
1: Um, So we don't necessarily know, um, you know, what, what the future holds for us, but, but for now, what we've seen is building a community, building uh, people that are um, essentially a community of members that are responsible on the water, responsible of our our boats, taking care of them like, um, like it's their own, essentially Uh, we, we want to. Get away from kind of the one-night stand type of right. service. Uh, right. We want people who are uh, going to take care of, of 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 the boats like like it's their own. Um, and and that's another thing at Skippery that is extremely important for us is the education component. Essentially, every membership comes with a one-on-one practical training with a licensed captain, and you don't start paying until you really feel comfortable using the boats, docking in and out. Um, so the education portion is super important. Um, and we're trying to stay as, you know, from a sustainability standpoint, we want to stay as, as close as possible to all the global megatrends that we're seeing, um, from a business standpoint. So shared economy, circular economy, as you mentioned oh. in your introduction, bike share, car to go, Truro, enterprise car share, those are, those are all models where, Um, essentially, you, you know, your, your, your consumer, you know, your member, uh, and there are people that you trust, uh, with the equipment you lend to them, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, the Marine world, which is, uh, a a different ballgame.
2: And obviously I, you'd have to have a boaters card, right? You'd have to be licensed for this.
1: That's correct. Um, yeah. So Skippery.ca is is a one stop shop. You can get your boater's license through us on uh, the Skippery website. Uh, then there are certain areas uh, on Lake Ontario where you need a second license. For example, the the, um, the Toronto Harbour, you need yeah. the, uh, the the Ports Authority uh, license. So we take care of that as well. We take care of the practical training, as I mentioned. So everything is done in house. We try to really simplify. Um, everything and make it hassle-free uh, for our people as much as possible. Kevin
2: Dextrator with his country lead, Skippery. Hey, um, boats? Why not? E-scooters? Sobe bikes? No, why not a boat? Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for the time. Good luck.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Have a good one.
0: When there's an issue, Scott is
2: all in on getting to the heart of it. This is
0: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on Hamilton's News Today's Talk 900 CXML.
2: All right. King Charles coronation, less than a month away. It's kind of, it's kind of weird. It's a different vibe this time. Uh, details are coming out. We're getting a little bit more and more, uh, hearing more about it, a little bit more subdued. We're hearing also, um, but you know, you probably don't remember the queens way back, or maybe you do. Uh, Saad Salman is with us, Royal Commentary, founder and editor of the Royal Watcher and is with us now. Saad, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
6: Hi. Thank you for having me on. I've been great.
2: Are you are you heading to the UK for all of this, On Are you going to be there?
6: Uh, yes, I will. So I leave in just over three weeks, and I'm really looking forward to it.
2: So it, does it feel different? And I mean, you know, obviously the Queen, it was in a long time ago, and many of us weren't around, um, but it just seems something different. Does it, does it feel different to you, um, uh, just this transition period that we're going through?
6: Yes, it definitely is. I think there were quite a few uh, expectations that people had, which are they're being a bit disappointed of, because it is on a much smaller scale. There's all sorts of elements that keeping in um, current with the times and the economic situation going on around the world and in particular in the UK. People are really focused at trying to make this coronation into a less pared back and more in keeping with the times that we live in than 70 years ago when the Queen was crowned.
2: So uh, just smaller, best way to describe it, Saad, how how will it be different?
6: So um, I think we can start with the main service. For the Queen, it was three hours. And uh, for King Charles, it will be around one hour, which will be the entire service at Westminster Abbey. Then there's going to be a coronation procession from uh, Buckingham Palace to the Abbey, and then from Abbey back to the Palace. Uh, For the Queen, she traveled all through London, but really for Charles, it's the same route going there and back. It's not necessarily any longer, and it's just kind of straightforward. So people are disappointed that there'll be a lot less area to see the King and Queen traveling in the Gold State coach. Uh, At the same time, uh, private sources have... uh, sent me the invitation to the coronation and I can reveal that uh, at least foreign heads of state will not be wearing tiaras and evening gowns or kind of that dress code that was expected for this coronation. So it is very much toned down. Um, They are really keeping in mind the cost of living crisis in the UK and trying not to be too ostentatious.
2: Is this, do you think, uh, due to just the, the the situation economically that that everybody finds themselves in now? Or is it, uh, you know, they're trying to position the king a little differently than they did the queen?
6: I think it's a mix of both factors. Um, the economic situation certainly has a big role to play. But at the same time, there are being uh, changes being made into the monarchy. And we can see this is really a sign of that uh, in the future that things will be on a much smaller scale than they have been in the past.
2: And Harry and Meghan, will they be there? What do we know about that story?
6: So they have yet to confirm their attendance, but uh, over the past few days we've been getting quite a lot of uh, details released. We got um, the coronation procession, the carriages that the king and queen will use. Then we got information on the regalia. Today we've had a lot more uh, international guests confirming their attendance. So I would think Harry and Meghan, uh, if they are going to be attending, we should confirm pretty soon.
2: And tell us about this gold coach that we've seen on uh, pictures of and whatever and the historical significance of it.
6: Yeah, so the gold coach uh, has been was commissioned in 1760 and ha- was first used in 1762. It's been used at every coronation for the past 200 years, more or less. And uh, it is mainly used at the coronation. It's been used, I think, at, on two other occasions during the Queen's reign for her Jubilee celebrations. And last year, it was part of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee pattern, where I had the pleasure to see it in person. They had a hologram of the Queen in display. The charges is made um, of gold leaf and covering the wood, and it's quite massive. It's also um, dependent on mother straps, so the Queen called it quite uncomfortable it does make sense that the king and queen will only be using it for one part of their procession and they'll be using a much more modern carriage for the earlier part of the procession because they would do value comfort over continuity in that sense.
2: You were talking about the guest list. Uh, Will it be more um, governor generals, dignitaries uh, like that, or will world leaders be actually there?
6: Yes. So our world leaders have um, been confirming their attendance today. We've got um, the First Lady of the United States, the French President, the Polish President. We've got the King and Crown Princess of Sweden, the King and Queen of Spain, of Belgium, of Malaysia, the Prince and Princess of Monaco, the Crown Prince and Crown Princess of Denmark, Japan, and Greece. So I think there's really a range of royal guests who will be attending. Uh, kind of a departure from tradition, because in the past, reigning heads of state, especially kings and queens have not been invited to coronation. It has something to do with protocol being that highest ranking person at an occasion can be the monarch, I mean, crown. So this is really a departure, but it's also kind of reflective of modern sensibilities where most countries don't really have a deputy uh, head of state in that sense that could attend mm-hmm. in place of the main head of state.
2: So is the prime minister going? Is Justin Trudeau going? Do we
6: know? Uh, I don't think he's confirmed yet, but most likely he will be. So will the governor general.
2: Fascinating to see what hotel room he stays in this time out. All right, Saad Salman with us. Uh, We'll be in touch with you again. Enjoy. Uh, Royal commentator, founder, and editor of The Royal Watcher. Saad, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. We've talked a lot about uh, artificial intelligence, especially in the last several weeks, uh, and specifically chat GPT. And, you know, initially I'm thinking, oh, this is for the kids uh, writing essays or doing work, uh, university assignments, what have you. No, this is virtually everything. I mean everything you want anything it can literally uh cultivate the internet and form whatever it is that you want to talk more about all of this uh how do you use it for good not evil dr carrie bowman is with us bioethicist and assistant professor in the department of family and community medicine the university of toronto also teaches the ethics of this emergent technology and is with us now carrie thanks for the time i hope you're well Very well, indeed. How do you balance this, Carrie? My goodness. This is like everything has come home to roost all at once. It does virtually everything. How do you balance technology and where we're going?
7: Well, that is the question. I mean, let's just start with education. And, you know... I feel bad for the students because the teachers, remembering I'm one, I'm a university professor, and it seems to be also true of elementary and high school. We can't figure out our position on this. So how on earth can we expect students to respond if we can't figure this out? And there's kind of two schools of thought. One, this is an educational tool and we need to, you know, learn it, learn it well and teach children and young adults how to use it the other is this is the biggest form of cheating we've ever seen and Hmm. it's going to wipe out critical thinking and you know the truth is probably somewhere in between um a lot of people are bending over backwards to keep an open mind about this but you know i'm a university professor i don't think for a moment any of my students are cheating my courses are too weird for that but but who knows But, you know, the thing is, I tried it out, as a lot of people have. And so what I did was I took my own – remembering I'm teaching the ethic – in this case, the course I speak of now, teaching the ethics of emerging biotechnology. So, you know, some pretty thorny, tricky ethical questions – you know, the first thing that surprised me, and this should not have surprised me, I should have known this, uh, is, you know, I thought I'll need to go have lunch and come back after it's had a chance to do its thing. That's not how it works. It does it right away. Um, <laughs> so, and, and you know, the answers were a lot more sophisticated than I ever would have thought. A little weird, mind you, a little weird. And and that's one of the things that highlights. It, it tends to go astray for now, but it won't for much later. Um... You know, I think we have to talk a lot to our students about it and have open conversations about this and begin to figure this out together, um, I, I think is the way forward. But I don't know how much longer we can go on without clear policies. Uh, you know, the universities, many of them haven't even made a statement as to whether it's cheating or not. If you, you know, have a GPT generated exam that, you know, is it legally, professionally, you know, not ethically, but but. So Mm -hmm. so that's a huge problem. But look, let me say this while I'm on a roll. Uh, This may be the least of our problems with with um, A.I. in which, you know, language is the bedrock of human civilization. It really, really is language and imagery. Mm -hmm. And now with 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 A.I. and with ChatGPT and all the many things that are going to follow it. We're increasingly going to be seeing our, our culture reflected back to us and not knowing whether that's human generated or machine generated. Uh, they're, they're, already this is occurring. When you read something, it's hard to know uh, you know whether that was human or not. And it may sound like a minor problem for now, but it'll take over very, very quickly.
2: Uh, will there not equally be some sort of program that debunks this, that you can, that professors and teachers can use to sort of find this? And and, and I keep coming back to Carrie whether it's the old Encyclopedia Britannica, the old Coles Notes or whatever. You, you know, there's a difference between a research tool and simply plagiarism, copying something.
7: Well, I know. Um, and I agree. So is there a tool? There's emerging tools. But here's the thing. I can't speak for all the institutions in this country and province but most of the institutions say even if we identify that it's that it's ai generated uh, can we take action on that that is not hmm. clear whether because plagiarism you know, my understanding, I know what the word means. You know what the word means. People listening know what the word means. But does that include a non human source, right? Like that's, that's mm. part of the question. Mm. So yes, we may be able to find it, but can we really sort of play hardball and say we now have proof? Therefore, this is not a valid submission. Uh, Mostly, we're not clear whether we can do that or not. But look, what I would say is as as AI expands and expands, I think a starting point needs to be each and every one of us has a fundamental right under virtually all circumstances to know when we are interacting with AI. That includes teachers. That includes the public. That includes when you're on hold on a telephone line. We really need to know uh, when we're interacting with AI and what the parameters are. Aren't
2: we coming a little late to this discussion, Carrie?
7: Yeah, yeah, we are because uh, <laughs> you know the thing is, we you can't solve a problem you don't fully understand. And the greatest minds—and mm. I'm not suggesting I'm one of them—but but really, the greatest experts at all of this—they uh, don't really know what the scope of the problem is and the depth of the problem is because potentially. I don't want to sound alarmist, but you've heard, and most of us listening, people listening have heard, that this could be really, really serious, and we're still not sure uh, as to how much of a threat that this could be. So again, part of the problem is we're trying to tackle a problem we don't fully understand the parameters of, but you know, it takes time for us to absorb these changes, and what's happening now is AI is moving so quickly that society, cultures, uh, collectively, we're not able to to absorb these changes at this rate
2: dr Kerry bowman with his bioethicist and assistant professor in the department of family and community medicine with the university of toronto chat gpt in our classrooms and beyond fascinating discussion carrie thanks for the time be well you're very welcome
5: take care
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, going to bring in Ian Lee, associate professor, uh, Dr. Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprout School of Business, Carleton University. Uh, Survey finding out that nearly half of Canadians aren't saving enough for retirement, and some saying they don't think they even will retire. This says France is rioting because their retirement age was moved from 62 to 64, and many Canadians not saying that they'll ever be able to uh that and of course uh big news out of ottawa in regard to the trudeau foundation and the board of directors uh, standing by let's get his take from ottawa dr ian lee is with us now from carlton ian thanks for the time hope you're well uh,
8: my pleasure scott thank you
2: first of all uh what is this with the trudeau foundation uh you're in ottawa obviously what's this uh what's the story there how much of an impact is this making can you break it down what's happened here
8: I'm not intimately involved. I'm not involved at all. But I mean, I'm, I'm certainly aware of what's been going on. Um, just big picture. It's a nonprofit. Um, there's many nonprofits uh, in Canada. I was the president of my condo corporation, which was a nonprofit corporation. And when I was in the bank, I dealt with a lot of NGOs, so-called NGOs, uh, not that condo corps are an NGO, but nonprofits, uh, charitable institutions, for example, the, the Canadian Red Cross. And um, I've always been fascinated by the because they're very different from the corporate world where I came from. The corporate world, there's a hierarchy and everybody understands the hierarchy. You report to your superior and your superior reports to another superior all the way up to the president and the president of the CEO reports to the board of governors. Very clear hierarchy, very clear, um, you know, who you're reporting to and who you have to take your instructions from. In the, in the nonprofit world, it's much more horizontal. The way I like to characterize it, corporate is vertical and, and NGOs are, are horizontal. Where I'm going with this is it's, it's much trickier much more difficult in the nonprofit world because everybody that's involved with that charitable institution, if they donate money or they're interested in the causes of that nonprofit feel they have a stake and a right to be heard in that uh, organization. And that makes it much more difficult to manage. I fully understand why the board stepped down uh, uh, all the members because they're typically not paid. They're volunteers typically in a nonprofit. Uh, certainly, I was never paid as, <laughs> in my Conto Corp. And uh, my point being that so you're taking all this pressure, whether it's the Canadian Hockey Foundation or whatever, and um, and then if something goes wrong, it, it, it hits the media very very quickly, as you saw. And I think it shows the risks of accepting. I want to make a very broad generic statement. It shows the risks of accepting large amounts of money uh, for a nonprofit. From corporations and from uh, people that are not Canadian citizens. I know that's a broad generalization, but it, it just brings you into, I think, risky territory. And in this instance, the Trudeau Foundation had accepted a very, very large donation from one single extremely wealthy person who was a Chinese citizen. And you know, if you have antenna, political antenna, or risk averse antenna, <laughs> so i I thought that maybe some alarm bells should have been going off saying, "Wait a minute, if this ever hits the media, someone's gonna ask questions like, why is somebody donating such an enormous amount of money who's not even from this country and and that that so I, I'm sympathetic to them. Uh, but at the same time, I think it was inevitable once they went down that road. And they didn't develop a policy in their internal governance on the board uh, to deal with this kind of thing. And and I think and once it hit the news and, and it became so political, it was inevitable that the board members were going to resign. Uh,
2: the prime minister reacted in saying uh, that it's the divisive climate. It's the, uh, the divisive uh, politics uh, politicizing all of this. When it, it really boils down to what you just said, it's a donation, allegedly, exactly. from somebody with ties to the Chinese Communist Party. So exactly. what does that have to do with divisiveness or not? He, he's just getting caught
8: again with his pants down, is he not? I have to disagree with the prime minister um, on, on this point. I, I just disagree with him because in a democracy, and we certainly are a democracy, we're not the controlled system of China, where I've been teaching for 20 odd years. Since 1997, I think that's more than 20-odd years, Uh, I've taught in Russia, and you certainly do not have freedom of speech. Well, the prime minister knows that in a country like Canada or the States, anybody can say anything, as long as you're not libeling them or engaging in hate speech. You can talk about anything, and it's perfectly legitimate uh, to talk about the donations made uh, by you know, a corporation to any uh, 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 organization, to any charity, to any political party if they were going to. And in this instance, it was inevitable that this was going to hit the media and be criticized because we know there's all kinds of leaks from the intelligence agency of our country about the attempts, multiple serial attempts by China to influence Canadian politics. And it's not just Canada. This has been documented in the States, in New Zealand, Australia. So, I mean, this is not somebody ginning up the story or, you know, or uh, juicing it up, if whatever the yeah. word is. It, it is because of the background of this story that China has a very significant record of interference in the affairs of foreign countries. And because this was the foundation of whom? The former prime minister of Canada, one of the most successful and longest serving prime ministers of Canada, who, oh, my goodness, is the father or was the father of the current prime minister. So, I mean, this was just inevitably going to become part of the political conversation.
2: All right. It is what it is. Uh, your thoughts on, uh, to switch gears here, a recent survey, half of Canadians uh, concerned they're not saving for retirement. They're going to be continuing to work past the retirement age. Oddly enough, as we're listening to France go through issues, trying to get theirs raised from 62 to 64. Um, how concerning is this? Uh, obviously, we're living much longer than our parents did, and and many people are retired longer than they
8: worked. How do we balance this? You're right. But um and I, by the way, I fully can respect the concerns of Canadians. I did a paper with Chancellor Professor VJ Jogg, a very distinguished professor. And we did a paper about four or five years ago on the whole pension in Canada only. So we weren't looking at France or anywhere else. And we were dealing with the question, is the pension system adequate? And then we also looked at the surveys and there's all kinds of surveys saying, oh, my God, I'm going to be destitute in retirement. I'm not going to have enough money. And the, as you, when you look at the actual empirical record, meaning of the income of people in retirement, And you look at their savings of people in retirement and Canadians consistently grotesquely overestimate the amount of money they need in retirement. One study came out, a survey, a poll, a poll of Canadians just a couple of weeks ago and saying that they need $1.7 million to successfully retire. Mm -hmm. That is preposterous nonsense. And let me explain why very quickly uh, because that sounds very strong for people listening. First off, with respect, I think a lot of people, a lot of Canadians, A lot of ordinary, us people, I think they confuse wealth with income. You do not need huge amounts of wealth to retire. You need a cash flow. It's called a pension. Hmm. When you work, you get a paycheck. It's called a wage. So you're paid an annual wage. And out of that, you pay your utility bills and your your gasoline and your car payments and your food and your rent or your mortgage. And there you go. When you retire, your income goes down typically. And by the way, StatsCan has good data on this. It's about 70% in retirement of your your gross income in retirement is about 70% of what it was when you were working full-time. Some people say, oh my God, how am I gonna live with a 30% pay cut? Well, John Baldwin at StatsCan, marvel. Researcher, Dr. Baldwin, did a really good survey on a study on this using stat scan data, just generically, what do people need in retirement? And he found out that people overestimate what they need in retirement because when you retire, you don't go downtown to work anymore. You don't have commuting costs, you don't have luncheon costs of going out, you know, to the cafeteria and getting coffee at Starbucks at five bucks a hit. Your costs go down significantly. And Scott, I want to tell you this: when the pandemic hit, I have been working from home ever since. So I'm sort of retired. I'm working full time. Don't misunderstand me. But I no longer go to the university except to teach. I go in literally three times a week. I drive in three hours, teach and jump in my car and go back home. My costs have gone down phenomenally. I don't buy anywhere near as much in clothing. I'm spending a lot less in commuting and transportation. And I'm not going down to that uh, ridiculously priced cafeteria food where the, you know, a lunch, a very modest sandwich is $15, five days a week. Thank you very much. Not to mention the coffee breaks. And so my point is in return. And then the second point very quickly I want to make for the, and I have, I have passed 65. People don't realize your consumption of many things declines. And there's good stats on this. Consumption of alcohol per person declines dramatically after 65. Your consumption of many, you don't go to rock concerts anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. you don't go out and entertain, you stay home a lot more. So people need a lot less in retirement. And so my point is these concerns, I understand because of inflation and all the economic trials and tribulations of the day are causing people to worry. But when you actually look at the net worth of retirees who are the wealthiest group in Canada, by the way, according to StatsCan, the wealthiest group in Canada are the retirees for average net worth. And you look at the pension system we've developed in this country between CPP, old age pension, guaranteed income supplement, and some 40% of Canadians have on top of all that, have a job, I mean, excuse me, have a a pension from their employer. And then on top of that, I want to talk very quickly. I'm sorry for taking up all the time, but I want to get this information out. There's a fifth pillar that nobody talks about. And we talked about that in our paper. The fifth pillar of retirement income, the house, the Mm. house, 70% of us have real estate and we have uh, the net worth of Canadians is 400,000 each because of real estate. And if you look at it by age, by boomers, the boomers have, the latest stats I have from StatsCan, 1.1 million net worth. So what do a lot of boomers do? And I have friends that do it. You downsize. There and you it's go. capital gain free. So it's not that bad. Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of
2: Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thanks for the time. You well. Thanks very much, Scott.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
2: In the U.S., the Biden administration is trying to manage the fallout from leaked classified intelligence documents that started circulating online in the past week. Photos of pages of paper documents that appear to have been unfolded, appeared in social media, uh, daily, contained daily details, updates provided to senior leaders. Of the Pentagon about operations in Ukraine and such. To talk more about all of this, Jeff McCoslin is with us, military analyst with CBS, founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, and is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, it's great to be with you. How significant is this, Jeff? Uh, we're, We're hearing reports that even at this point, it's it's hard to tell how deep this is.
9: Yeah, I think potentially this is very significant, Scott, for a number of reasons. First and foremost. It shows us the saliency of how deeply the United States has penetrated, frankly, Russian intelligence and military services. And that, that in essence, could well compromise so-called sources and methods, how we've been attaining that. I'm sure the Russians right now are trying to figure that out and shut down that access that we have enjoyed for some period of time. Second, it gives very specific information about the quality of Ukrainian forces, the shortages of certain munitions, particularly air defense weapons, and which units need to be The ones preparing for the upcoming counteroffensive. Well, it doesn't give specific times or places where that offensive might begin. Certainly, those are indicators and information that the Russians will find advantageous as they prepare to kind of counteract that. And then, thirdly, there's also information about U.S. relations and, frankly, U.S. intelligence gathering on our own allies, Ukraine for certain, but also information on uh, intelligence gathering against the Israelis and also against the South Koreans particular with respect to some of their policies on deciding whether or not they're going to provide munitions to Ukraine as the United States has urged.
2: Hmm. Uh, Now, this information released is one thing, but is it falsified as well? There's been um, deletions, additions made to this. Is that accurate?
9: That's very accurate. And the Pentagon seems to acknowledge this is largely correct. That being said, you can look at different different social media platforms that are carrying the information you can see certain places where it, in fact has been changed most notably with respect to reports on russian and ukrainian casualties and it seems like subsequent releases on other platforms telegram twitter etc have shown a, a dramatic decrease in the reporting of russian casualties and a dramatic increase in the reporting of ukrainian casualties most observers i know I believe the Russians have probably suffered around 200,000 or more casualties, about 40,000 or more killed, rest wounded, missing prisoners, perhaps. The Ukrainians, about half that many. But that does seem to be one place where it has been distorted. Perhaps that's an effort by the Russians to counteract some of the impact of these documents.
2: Uh, we're also hearing uh, up here about Russian interference with Canadian pipeline systems. Anything you can tell us about that?
9: Yeah, it, there are reports that the Russians are using cyber to uh, test out or go after certain things, some of them, including uh, the platforms there in the, in Canada. Unclear to me. I haven't seen any reports on how successful that's been. But just the fact that Russians are attempting to do that is, is of course, worrisome because this may be testing that out or some plan for the future for a more expen- extensive attack on not only Canada, perhaps the United States and other, other Western allies.
2: How damaging is this, considering it, it even has information on what the U.S., how they feel about allies?
9: It could be really damaging. For, first of all, I mean, many allies may be a little bit more reluctant to share intelligence with the United States if, if, we, can't, if we can't better safeguard the documents as we've seen here. <clears throat> Second of all, of course, it's somewhat irritating, though most people recognize the fact that people do fly on their allies to have that revealed publicly. And it certainly strains relations with certain key players, one of being right now the Israelis and U.S. relations between the Netanyahu government in in Jerusalem and the Biden government in Washington are somewhat strained already. But there are reports in these documents that uh, the head of Mossad uh, Intelligence Services in Israel actually urged some of his employees to demonstrate against uh, the Netanyahu government and their effort to change laws with respect to the judiciary in Israel.
2: Jeff McCausland with us, military analyst with CBS, founder and CEO of Diamond Six Leadership Strategy. Jeff, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: All right, we talked earlier about uh, documents, U.S. documents. This is coming out of the U.S., leaked from the Pentagon earlier this year. Hackers working with Russia's spy agency uh, claim to have disrupted operations at a Canadian natural gas pipeline company, inflicting costly damage on its infrastructure. Leaked Pentagon doc- documents say. Now the issue here is uh, these documents are being left, but then they're, they're leaked, but then they're being falsified. So a lot of the information, they're still trying to uh, just to get through it all and, and, to, and to see what is what. Uh, the information uh, purportedly collected by American Signal Intelligence or Electronic Interception of Conversations also said a Kremlin-aligned hacking group was in contact with Moscow's Federal Security Service. Um, screenshots, shared screenshots and sh- and such, and claims to have the capacity to increase value pressure, disable alarms, and initiate an emergency shutdown of an unspecified gas distribution station to talk more about all of this Carmi levy with this technology analyst and journalist he is with us now Carmi thanks for the time hope you're well Good to be here scott thanks for having me so i think what, what's bizarre about this is there's information that's being leaked from the united states or through this pentagon or through the pentagon but some of it's being falsified so we don't know what's accurate and what isn't accurate what are your thoughts
5: Well, I mean, it's there's, you know, someone isn't telling the truth, because according to these documents, these uh, pro-Russian hackers, a group known as Zarya, managed to infiltrate Canadian gas distribution, so natural gas distribution infrastructure, and they were able to play with the valves, they were able to turn alarms off, according to them, they said that they initiated an Mm. emergency shutdown of an unspecified gas distribution station. I mean, these are the kinds of things that if successful, would basically result in a huge facility blowing up. Uh, And, uh, you know, to the best of our knowledge, Canadian gas industry executives are saying, we have no idea what they're talking about. We have no evidence (laughs) of there being any kind of attack. We have no evidence, uh, just as importantly, that any of our systems have been compromised or that there are any uh, worms or viruses or infiltrations or breaches of the firewall, anything like that. So, you know... Russians claiming, yeah, we broke in and did all sorts of crazy things, and there's no evidence of that. So hard to tell. But the fact that that the you know the we know that the other documents have been uh, doctored. We know that there has been you know it, 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 it's very difficult to ascertain or validate or verify. It. And of course, the agencies that would be talking about this, the communications security establishment, public safety minister, uh, or the, the entire ministry itself. Uh, of course, they're not going to say anything because that would compromise national security. So, uh, you know, your guess is as good as mine. But, I, you know, I, I think it's safe to say for now we're safe, but it's a pretty scary threat landscape. And we know that Russia is coming for Canada because of our involvement in assisting Ukraine. So it's not like we can let our, our guard down anytime soon either.
2: You know, we've talked about this for years, Carmi, and, and, you know, whether it's private companies who've had data breaches or, or whether it's government or such. And, and you or, or many like you have said, you know, you got to get on this. You got to, you got to uh, keep protecting yourself per se. Are we getting smarter at this just because of the political climate and the way things have changed in the last uh,
5: year or so? I think we're trending in the right direction, whether that curve is steep enough to sort of keep up with the fact that the world is becoming an even more threatening place uh, is another story altogether. I think we're finally starting to recognize both at an individual level and a corporate level and a government level that we're not spending enough money on cybersecurity. We're not training our people well enough. Uh, We haven't put enough resources into education for cybersecurity so that, you know, but I, I think there's since the Ukraine invasion, I think there's recognition that that Canada now is at greater risk because of our involvement and that we are starting to make those greater investments. Are they enough? They'll never be enough. Uh, And we will never fully close that gap. Uh, And I think this really is a warning. These papers, uh, the leak of them is a warning to the Canadian government that we have to continue to press harder on the gas pedal. Otherwise, at some point, this possibly could have been an attack will become an actual attack and nobody wants to see that
2: uh earlier on and we've talked about this we were talking to dr kerry bowman a bioethicist and assistant prof at the department of uh community medicine university of toronto he teaches ethics classes we were talking about chat gpt as you and i have had uh, many chats about how does that sort of ai change this discussion does it
5: Uh, It does. Uh, And and I hate to say it, but it means that there are clouds gathering on the horizon because artificial intelligence, well, on the one hand, it can make security tools more secure, more powerful. Uh, it also, in the hands of a hacker uh, or a black hat hacker, a state-sponsored hacker, uh, could give them, make it easier for them to, to to bypass those protections, to propagate an attack. It could make uh, today's attacks look like child play because tomorrow's attacks will be that much more devastating. Uh, for example, artificial intelligence allows uh, certain tools to blow through encryption that we think is inviolable today. But it's a very hmm. power, it's almost like a very powerful key on the front door. It breaks through locks that other tools can't. And so, you know, that basically what it means is that uh, in the hands of the wrong people, things are going to get worse, all thanks to artificial intelligence. And if we don't control even the simple things like how we use chat GPT in our schools, how can we be expected to keep government and corporate and national infrastructure safe from hackers halfway around the world?
2: And the the conversation we had earlier, Carmi, was, um, you know, aren't we a little late to this table? But as the expert pointed out, man, it's new. It's a new world. And until this stuff is really d- discovered and laid out for us, we really don't know how to react to it. Is that valid?
5: I think that's fair. We're, we're very early in the evolution of artificial intelligence for the most part. I mean, it's been around for decades, but it's largely been confined to labs. And only researchers and computer scientists have really had access to it. Only with the release of chat GPT into the public domain last November, have we as individuals and as organizations and governments as well, have they been able, have we all been able to kind of roll up our sleeves and touch it and play with it? And so it's almost like, you know, we're just getting started. So yeah, it is somewhat unfair to say, Hey, government, why aren't you on top of this? Um, But at the same time, this is just the latest chapter in the entire cybersecurity conversation. We should frame it up as that and say, basically, as a society, we should be front and center on this. AI just adds more urgency to the conversation.
2: Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist uh, hacking at the Pentagon through Russia and um, around and around we go. Carmi, as
5: always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Great being here, Scott. Thank you.
4: It is a shame to see the level of uh, toxicity and political polarization uh, that is going on in our country these days. Uh, But I am certain that the Trudeau Foundation uh, will be able to continue to ensure uh, that research into the social studies and humanities at the highest levels across Canadian uh, academic institutions uh, continues for many years to come.
2: I don't know how this man can keep a straight face, and I don't know how the rest of you can believe this ongoing story, the divisiveness in this country, the divisive. No, 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 no. There's allegations here that the prime minister's office knew over the last two elections that there's been interference from the Chinese Communist Party. So that's already been reported many times. And that this foundation received a check from the same, uh, or or somebody uh, tied to the Chinese Communist Party back in Beijing. And all of a sudden this is about divisiveness? It's not about divisiveness. You're accused of sitting idle while people interfere with the election, over two elections, and you're not doing anything about it because it benefits you. And you're talking about it being divisive? This isn't divisive. This is the prime minister again shooting himself in the foot. And what does it mean for David Johnston, the rapporteur, who was a member of the foundation until recently? Duff Connickers, with his co-founder of Democracy Watch. He's here now. Duff, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
10: Yes, I am. Thank you. Duff, you
2: must be just shaking your head here as this pile just continues to grow and grow and grow. What are your thoughts at the revelation that the board of directors, the president of all, resigned in mass uh, from the Trudeau Foundation?
10: Well, um, they're saying that the foundation has become politicized. Um, It was always politicized, so it's kind of strange that they're suddenly deciding that uh, the connections to the liberal um, party and the liberal government through Trudeau and his family members somehow are different than they have been in the past. Um, but uh, they're not really saying they're doing it because the foundation has been tainted by taking this donation in the past, which is really what they should be saying, and they should also be saying it was a big mistake. Well, that's that's, that's the whole. Donation like that. That's
2: the whole point, Duff. I mean, they're talking about this, how this is being politicized. They took money from somebody who's allegedly interfering with elections, and they thought enough of it to give it back. So, uh, how can you be any more guilty and now still blame it on everyone else?
10: Yes, and also we're really guilty in taking the money in the first place.
1: I mean they only yeah. gave
10: it back years later when you know this was a money from a foreign businessman who was well known had ties to the the government in China and um, you know even that should have been viewed with the, with justified suspicion right when it was first offered you know, so Canadian the fact foundations that, that are granting to universities shouldn't be taking money from foreign sources because what does it also-
2: say that this what does it say that this foundation the the board has all resigned in in mass does this not say that yeah we did this we're guilty of this it's a conflict of interest is this not admitting there's a conflict of interest here
10: it's hard to tell what they're admitting to because they're just using this loaded term that it's all politicized now. And so they're stepping down because of the political climate. Um, <laughs> you know, they just didn't really uh, politicization of a donation it received seven years ago. Well, yeah, but it was politicized seven years ago when they took it. Like they just shouldn't have been taking money from a Chinese billionaire and another Chinese businessman when they know, and neither should the University of Montreal as well, when everyone knows how the Chinese economy works. Like you don't become a billionaire in China without ties to the government. It's just not possible because it's not a free economy. So, you know, this, Money, the never, money's never should have been taken. Should the board have resigned from taking it? Yeah, probably should have resigned from taking it back when they took it because that was the real scandal. Well, they're making it, it sound like
2: they've all... Yeah, they're making it sound like they all stepped down because, oh, this is just getting too ugly for us. Well, no, you're stepping down because you're caught here and that's what you should be doing.
10: Indeed, and should have done a long time ago. Um, you know, it... it students applying for money from the foundation. Not that again, the, the foundation, never really had a great record, I don't think in terms of supporting scholarship because it was always politicized. And if you look at the people who have been on the board, it's a, it's a bunch of people from the power elite and they wouldn't grant anything that would challenge the government of the day. People doing research, for example, into the ethics of the Trudeau government. So, um, you know, it's, it's all part of the power elite itself as a foundation, and its granting has shown that over the years. Um, and so it's it, it not like it has a great reputation already as, as mm. something that is really supporting independent research that's really needed. Um, and, this, and then was just tainted even further by taking this money. The, the media coverage at the time should have been enough for them to send the money back. And, and like so many things in Canada, there's media coverage for a bit and then those who want to resist doing the right thing just say, oh, the media's turned its attention to something else. So I'll keep on doing the wrong thing for another seven years till the media turns its attention again to the situation. And then maybe I'll finally do the right thing.
2: And to complicate this even more, David Johnston, the special rapporteur, was a member of the foundation until very recently. Is, is that accurate?
10: Yes and, and uh, took on the job of a Special Rapporteur and left the foundation, as if that somehow distanced wow. himself from wow. the Trudeau government. Plus, he's family friends with Trudeau. I mean, that's the biggest thing. Um, he's made statements on China as well that are, are justifiably controversial, given the, the uh, admiration he's expressed uh, about uh, various aspects of, of China's uh, Governance and society, but he was making many of those statements as the ambassador to China. And so was reflecting the uh, Canadian government's view at the time, which was to try and be friends with China and build relations with it as if we have some something in common between our society and mm. society in China and, and the way of governance, government in China, which we don't at all. Um, but so you can excuse some of those comments because he made them as, as the ambassador to China. Others are inexcusable because he made them uh, not in the position of ambassador. And, but the main thing is he's a friend of Trudeau's family. You cannot hmm. do, take a government contract from your friend and then be judging him, which he is. He is judging what Trudeau did. It's part of his mandate to judge what Trudeau did in response to the uh, information provided to him. In the prime minister's office, uh, on foreign interference in the elections.
2: Where is this going, Duff, on, uh, this whole thing rega- in, around the foundation and the board standing down after giving the money back? Um, because it seems that nobody seems to care, like nothing, it's Teflon Trudeau, nothing sticks to this guy.
10: Uh, I don't think the recent polls showing who's favored as best prime mm-hmm. minister show that, um, He's been dropping and dropping and dropping significantly. The foundation, three board members are remaining because that's what they need as a minimum in order to appoint new board members. So they're remaining in their positions for now. And David Johnston, what can I say? March 15th, he was named that he was going to be special rapporteur. He should have resigned the position on March 16th and said, I can't do this position. Of course not. I'm a friend of Trudeau's, and a public inquiry is needed. That would have been, that would have shown integrity. Every day that goes by, it's just uh, showing less and less integrity. You can't do. You wonder stuff. how
2: worse it, it's so You crazy. wonder how how much. You you wonder how far this can keep going. I mean, it's, you know, my goodness, look behind you. There's the line. Duff Coniger with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Uh, The Trudeau Foundation president and board of directors resigned, uh, talking about the uh, entanglement with the ongoing foreign interference controversy around the Chinese Communist Party. Duff, as always,
10: thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. We'll have um, much more news on this coming up very soon.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
2: Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. And by the way, do you know who sings that
11: song? OK, Blue Jays yeah um you know yes, his daughter you know his daughter yes. yeah she worked with us yeah. he did yeah laura hampshire yeah. that's keith hampshire yeah i know that's there hilarious i found that out after she started working here and i saw the name keith hampshire I went you're not related are you And she goes yeah that's my dad. no way yeah. you actually said that
2: well, no way i, I can't did. believe that yeah no anyway, wow. there next. you go H- how many hampshires do you know uh right. well her <laughs> and now him uh, so anyway, uh, lots of chatter over the course of the week. Not so much about the team. Uh, it was funny listening to a commentator. They're, they got this, they've got that. And now they've done this and this and that and that. And oh yeah, there's a ball game too. <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, your thoughts about the new digs and the renos? Uh, is it more about that than the team this year?
11: Uh, no, but it is tonight for yeah. the home opener. Absolutely, it is. Everybody, I think, is eager to see. What the new? Well, it's not the new place. What the what the redone place looks like? They've they've they, they've renovated mm-hmm. the kitchen at home. Let's put it that way. And everyone wants to see what the island now looks like that uh, that you've built. Um, <laughs> it's, th- th- I mean, look. There's some there's some neat looking things, and there is an idea that I think is a really good one. That is a twenty dollar pass that you can get in. You don't get a seat, but you can wander around all these public areas. <laughs> that's in the outfield. cool. And you mm-hmm. know that that's that's good for a bunch of reasons but the biggest one and I'll put an asterisk beside it for a sec the biggest one is sports as a in general sports have reached the point now where they are so it's so expensive to go to a game even in the crappy seats that kids yeah. kids don't go to games now like i when i was a kid yeah. I remember my dad had a friend who had front row seats at Maple Leaf Gardens for the Leafs. They were $35 back in the early 80s. Now they're, well, I don't even know what they are, $800 a game now or something. So $35 under Harold Ballard, love him or hate him, but at least that was something that the average person, if you could find a way to get the seats, you could afford to go to Mm -hmm. a game. So once a year, my dad bugged his friend and we got tickets once a year to go to a Leaf game. Now... I can tell you, unless your dad is a CEO somewhere, you're probably not going and sitting in the gold yeah. seats or the platinum seats for a Leaf game. And so I love the idea of finding a way to get, remember the $2 seats that used to be in the, uh, yes, the Blue I remember Jays that. The, yeah. the, 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 for yeah. Dominion? I think it was Dominion or something had the, anyway. Um, yeah. So I love this idea especially that we're making a game affordable. Now, the only question I have, and I'm hoping to find a bit of an answer tonight is, Are these seats, are these not seats, are these areas only bars? Because that would then mean that kids aren't going to be going on these cheap passes to get in. I, I hope there's a family area where you can go and take your kid and it doesn't cost
2: you a fortune to go to a game. I'm glad they didn't try to tear it down and start over again, which is what it seems they do nowadays. Um, and because I, I think the Sky Dome, the retractable roof, that still to me has a selling feature. You can do anything you want to the inside. I mean, you don't need to tear the place down in order to do that. I think the roof opening is is worth keeping. Uh, so I'm glad that they've decided to take this giant cavernous place that you know one time held like 52,000 people, bumped out some seats, and and actually made. Made some space that, as you said, for for fans that want to come in and don't spend an arm and a leg and such. I'm, I'm glad they made better use of this building.
11: Yeah, and when you say about Tear It Down, I know there was talk a while back that, oh, you know, it would be really nice to do something like uh, like Camden Yards in Baltimore, some like old school – Yeah. Thing. Look, it's a romantic thought until you're playing a game yeah. late in April and it's snowing and 400 below and howling wind. And then everyone's saying, why did we get rid of the dome? Yeah. I, you the, the dome, look, it may not be aesthetically as perfect as some other ballparks that you can point to now. I mean, if you ever drive down to Cincinnati and see the Great American Ballpark or better yet, go to Wrigley Field if you ever get a chance. I mean, look, we can't compare to that here. But yeah. we also live in a country that has climates and different seasons mm. And as much as I say, we can romanticize this idea because on a lovely July day, sure, it'll be nice to be in a place like that. Uh, Come late September or early in April, it's really nice to Mm -hmm. not be dying out there to watch a baseball game.
2: Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Hey, by the way, just before I let you go, was that you rollerblading down the link the other day?
11: Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to make sure. I thought it was. It looked like you're sort of. Gaze, I know. But I wasn't sure. <laughs>
2: I thought you were going to say something about my muscular calves or you know thighs, something like that Even if I thought that, I would have
11: never said it out loud (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast You can listen to the show
0: live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com
2: That's it for us Thanks for listening As always, we leave it to you the taxpaying customer to have the last word Mr. Lowe wrote in to say Would it not be interesting and
7: perhaps exciting that in the future politicians are replaced by beings based on artificial intelligence. Just imagine, perhaps? No foreign interference in our politics, no worries about mice and
5: raccoons in official residences. R2-D2 of the future has my vote.